0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host.
1: i Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. Yeesh, not really many to go with here, are there? <laughs> Anything I say makes me look like a jerk if I go with the comedy here. Ah, so, we can bring some,
0: uh, some lightness to this topic it's okay pigeon
1: catcher <laughs> pigeon catcher a yeah. uh, world-renowned uh, pianist totally. uh you know josh i know you were hoping i would uh make light of someone going and having a stroke and having diminished faculties but i'm not going that route yet. you
0: can if you want to it's okay <laughs> the movie takes it seriously enough that we can uh, uh we can be jovial if we like. Oh, does
1: it? Do you think this movie's a
0: bit heavy with its tone? It is.
1: It is. Yeah. So
0: in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 2012. And the movie we are talking about in this episode is the Cannes Film Festival Palme d'Or winner. And it is Amour from Michael Haneke. And or I believe like his name is pronounced Hanukkah. But uh, it feels it feels weird to keep saying Hanukkah. But mm-hmm. uh, that's, I've always heard Hanukkah. Oh, that's interesting. I think I was looking at Wikipedia as like the pronunciation guide, and I think that might actually be the way it is, but we'll just butcher it. Oh. He won't care.
1: And this is one of the eight gifts he's given yeah, us. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> so this is a very serious film. It is about uh, the sad decline of aging. Uh, starring uh, Jean-Louis Trintignant and Emmanuel Riva as a couple, an elderly couple in Paris. And the woman, Anne, she has a stroke, and then she has another stroke. And um, as Georges, her husband, says at one point, it, things will get bad and then things will get worse. And That's that's kind of how, uh, how the outlook is for everyone
1: in this film. Josh, Hanukkah is... I'm going to just call him Hanukkah for the episode okay. if that's what we think his name is. He himself said that the theme is the question of how to deal with the suffering of a loved one.
0: Yes, it really is about what happens in this relationship when one person is in decline is incapacitated and needs to be cared for and how does this change their relationship and how does the other person deal with it? And and is as bleak as it is, I will say and I'm no expert on on Michael Haneke, but um I've seen a few of his other movies, and this is certainly the most compassionate and optimistic film of his that I've seen. So he uh, he generally has a very bleak and harsh and almost punishing worldview in his films. And that that's directed as much toward the audience as it is toward the characters. And, and this movie has some gentleness to it that's uh, not present in the other films of his that I've seen.
1: Yeah, what's going on? You know, we did the Dardan brothers. We did. We're doing Hanukkah. The, these guys, they win the Palme d'Or. And uh, what, what's going on there in that Western front of Europe between France and Austria and uh, the Belgium? What, 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 why are you guys so upset? What, what, what's happening? You got nice land there. You a, a good life. These are
0: serious films. You know, we talked about. I think uh, four months, three weeks, two days, which is another. Door winner well, we that makes about. sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty bleak. So, uh, yeah, but Hanukkah as a filmmaker is is known for this, and and for being extremely, like I said, nihilistic and and almost sadistic in the way that he deals with his the audience. And so this this movie is a tough watch, but it has more hope to it. I think, at least the the characters are nice to each other for the most part they care about each other and uh that's yeah, not necessarily present in his other films
1: i don't know if there's hope in this movie it's this it's this impossible question to answer right because Anne, after she has a stroke she says she knows it's only going to get worse and she wants to die and then um you know george who loves her is says he'll just care for her he's not going to let her die and is that is that the right move? Is that a selfish move? Like, you know, it's, it's, an, these are impossible questions to answer, but uh, there was definitely no hope. It wasn't like, Oh, cool. Just keep doing your exercises and you'll be back on your feet in no time. You know, although, I mean, I've, I know, I mean, I, look, if this didn't win the Palme d'Or, Josh, I could have been like, are you fucking with me right now, Josh? Because I went through this. I mean, you know, my grandmother, the character of Anne was almost like a composite of what happened to my grandmother and my grandfather, you know, where my grandmother lost um, her ability, like to move her legs and everything, and and then my grandfather uh, was dealing with aspects of dementia at the end. So it was it was extremely tough for me to watch because it brought all of this visceral reaction back to seeing that.
0: Right. Well, I think that's part of the appeal if I don't know if that's the right word but but the reason that so many people connect with this movie and the acclaim for it is because it's not just you who's gone through this it's not just the characters in this film it's not just Michael Haneke himself who was inspired in part by his aunt who raised him and and kind of how things went with her toward the end of her life this is a very common situation you know I saw so- something similar with my own grandfather and I think most people have some identification with this kind of situation. Um, even fairly young people, I think if you look at grandparents or aunts or uncles or great grandparents or whatever, it's it's a it's a universal theme. So when I say that it's hopeful, it's not that I mean that the situation for the characters is hopeful and that Anne is gonna get better, as you say, obviously not. But I think it's more that it's it's got more hope about human relationships. That these people do care about each other and they try to do what's best for each other, even when that's sort of horrifying. And that what they do, they do with love. And that is in contrast to other Hanukkah films where there is very little human compassion or love or anything like that amongst people in those films.
1: Yeah. So I don't I'm I'm new to the game of Hanukkah, Josh. I don't have anything to compare it to. This is the first Michael Hanukkah movie I've seen. But um it's it's a hard question to answer cuz like you know like she she like I said she tells George like I'm I want to die this is only going to get worse so like is he doing the most selfless thing possible or is what he's doing very selfish like it's a it's that's one of the uh, effective questions this movie brings up.
0: Right and regardless of where you kind of come down on that I think you it's clear that he does what he does because he believes it is best for her and for them, and he does it with the love that he's had for her for their entire marriage. Yes. So this movie was quite successful for something this depressing. Um, it grossed $29.69 million on its budget of $8.9 So I mean- Happy Hanukkah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and it won a whole bunch of awards, including, of course, the Palme d'Or. It was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, uh, Best Actress for Emmanuel Riva, who was the oldest ever nominee for Best Actress at age 85, and I think is still the oldest ever nominee in that category, uh, Best Original Screenplay and Best Director for Michael Haneke, and it did win the award for Best Foreign Language Film. It won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film. It won the BAFTA for in that category, as well as Best Actress. It was nominated for 10 awards at the Caesars, which is the French Top Film Award, and it won five of those, including Best Film and a whole
1: slew of other awards. Yeah. So, Josh, let me jump on some of those things. This uh, Hanukkah also uh, repeated the feat with the white ribbon for Palme d'Or and Best Foreign Picture. Have you seen that one? I have seen that one. And yes,
0: that is a a very uh, bleak, (laughs) unpleasant film to watch, but beautiful.
1: Okay, and then you know uh, that year, and we'll get obviously into the Oscars later. But Reva lost to Jennifer Lawrence, who I think was still in her twenties, yeah, right? Was for Silver the, Linings Playbook, one of the
0: youngest ever nominees in that category. So that's an interesting contrast.
1: Well, well, and actually, wasn't she up against the youngest nominee ever, the girl from *Beast of the Southern Wild*? Oh uh, yeah, right? uh,
0: Wallace, who is yeah, I believe you're right. That was a lead actress nomination and not a supporting nomination. So. That makes sense. As it should have right. been. As yeah, no, it should you're have right, been. And we'll talk about, about her.
1: that. So Argo won Best Picture. Tarantino won Best Screenplay for Django Unchained. And Ang Lee won uh, Best Director for Life of Pi, the movie that 2012 keeps bringing to us. Yeah.
0: But I mean, I think at this time, of course, there had not yet been a non-English language movie to win Best Picture. So I mean, the odds were clearly right. stacked against it. Um, just the fact that it got nominated in that, I didn't realize in those major categories, I had forgotten that it had gotten nominated beyond just the foreign language
1: film. Yeah. And I think at the time, maybe this was like the sixth or seventh foreign language film to ever be nominated for best picture. Um, Josh, I pulled this out of the research at, at, uh, Cannes that year. Jury president Nanny Maretti, uh, told Michael Hanukkah that it had, it, had it been up to him, he would have awarded the film. Not just the Palme d'Or, but best actor, uh, best actress, best director, and best screenplay. Ironically, Hanukkah himself was responsible for getting the rules changed, which allowed one film to only win one major award. When in 2001, his film, The Piano Teacher, won three awards at Cannes the Grand Jury Prize, Best Actress, and Best Actor.
0: Yeah, I know they usually try to spread those around. I didn't realize it was as recent as 2001 that they changed those rules because I think most film festivals usually try to. Even if it's not a, a formal rule, just as a as a way of, you know, giving support to different movies, they try to spread those awards around.
1: I mean, OK, but like does Emmanuel Riva not give like one of the great performances any of us have ever seen on film here? Like maybe just for that alone, you'd be like, yeah, let's throw the awards out here. Right. No, you know, she, the rules out, she, she, is, she so. is
0: fantastic in this movie and in what I'm sure is an extremely difficult performance for her to give and and has to be difficult also not just as an acting challenge but i would have to think as a person at 85 years old to like go through all of these things that you imagine could theoretically be happening to you at, at any time at any moment there is has got to be really emotionally difficult
1: yeah and uh josh pronounced the lead actor's last name for uh, me one more time See that's very good. I would have been like Trigonet. but well, you can say that if you want. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, he had he had he, he's a legend, and he had taken years off from uh, being in films to focus on stage work, and he came back specifically for this movie and specifically with Hanukkah. And um, you know, these are just these are just masters, you know, showing their capabilities at this point in time.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. He had been, I think, this was his first film in fourteen years at this point, and he is. I mean, both of them are these major actors of like the French New Wave era and Trintignant especially had just done like a hundred plus films, I think, uh, over the course of his very long career. So, I mean, I think that was part of it. And that's something that reviews mentioned too, that that I noticed, I don't know if it's in any of the excerpts I have, but a lot of them talking about how some of the power here is the fact that you've seen these actors in their younger days in these major films. And now it's like, you know them and we're watching them as these characters who are declining. And that's an extra layer of sadness because this movie is, is all about layers of sadness.
1: It is. Interestingly, I'm looking at the awards from Ken from this year. And, uh, there is, um, our friend from, um, Romania uh, won for best screenplay, Christian Munju. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, who we talked about with that other lovely piece. Uh, from
0: four months, three weeks, and two days, yes. he's a Yeah, which was a great It one. was, and he's a Cannes favorite. I think his, a lot of his films have won awards uh, over the years at but, Cannes.
1: But that's what I don't understand, because uh, he won for Beyond the Hills, and then the best actress of the festival were both the actresses from Beyond the Hills, mm. so I'm confused. Yeah, I don't know how that works, but... Uh, Anyway,
0: uh, it wasn't like this movie was short on awards, certainly. And it also was almost universally critically acclaimed on a, an incredibly wide scale. So uh, Roger Ebert said, Amor, which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes last year, is an unexpected kind of masterpiece by Hanukkah, whose films have included the enigmatic cachet and the earlier Palme d'Or winner, The White Ribbon. We don't expect such unflinching seriousness, such profundity from Hanukkah. Unlike a mysterious film such as Cachet, which audiences are still debating, this one is spoiler-proof. Its opening scene essentially tells us how it will end. Why would we want to see such a film, however brilliantly it has been made? I think it's because a film like Amour has a lesson for us that only the cinema can teach. The cinema, with its heedless ability to leap across time and transcend lives and dramatize what it means to be a member of humankind's eternal audience.
1: I thought a lot about that opening scene after watching this movie which is you see Riva's character and she's dead and she's on the bed and she's been there for a while at this point in time and I thought about that like um cuz we never come back to that policeman you know we barely come back to that instance I was wondering why start the movie with that scene was that just because this is so bleak and harsh that you kind of need to like let the audience know okay this is the, <laughs> we're we're setting a baseline for where it's all going or it was a, it was interesting cuz like I, I was thinking like would that have been more of effective if we didn't see that until the end i don't know you know yeah i mean
0: i think he kind of wants to tell you that it's not going to work out even though you can intellectually know that someone of that age with those health issues is not going to recover most likely but i think there's a tendency in in films and just in life to have hope to think that something could always turn out well and he wants mm. to make it clear to you that this is not a story about that this is a story about a decline that ends in this death and that you have that in mind the entire time as you watch what they go through is is sort of my feeling about it
1: yeah i mean man it just it brings back a lot of like just painful stuff cuz you know when my grandmother Uh, I think it was like a similar situation. She had a surgery and maybe not everything went right. And she was paralyzed from the waist down. And my grandfather couldn't get it through his head that like, she was never going to walk again. And, uh, that's so tough to see, you know, people, I mean, these people clearly led a full life. They were, you know, we see them at the, the, uh, the concert and they were music teachers and they had this nice place and the, so it's uh, it's just tough, but I guess there's no such thing as a happy ending. Josh, we all die in the we end. We do, and certainly mm. there are no happy endings in Michael Hanukkah films. Michael Hanukkah Even movies. though he made a movie yeah. literally <laughs> called
0: Happy End. Um, and I also, uh, this is morbid, but I, I looked this up and and Roger Ebert also, he wrote that review three months before he himself died, and was ah. obviously not mm. you know in, in good health himself, at that time, and I have to imagine those are things that might be on his mind as well, watching this film. Mm. Yeah, fun stuff. So um, Manola Dargis in The New York Times said, There is a great deal that is difficult to watch here, the indignities of debilitating illness included, and the equally harsh pain of witnessing a great love, a longtime companion, slowly fade away. Viewers acquainted with Mr. Hanukkah's work may find more too cold, cruel even and its depiction of suffering a punishing, familiar gesture from a director who's long been interested in transforming spectators from simple consumers into critical thinkers. Yet there's another point to be made here, namely that all the violence and amour is crucial to Mr. Hanukkah's rigorous, liberatingly unsentimental worldview, one that gazes on death with the same benevolent equanimity as life. This is a film that will make you weep not only because life ends, but also because it blooms um did you think there was a lot of violence in there? I don't think she's meaning violence as in like literal like fighting between people, but just sort of harshness directed toward the characters and toward the audience maybe so no, there aren't very there really aren't very many violent acts in this film in, in other than uh, the uh final end of the life of Anne let's say I don't know we'll spoil it all, but you know.
1: I know. And, and and again, though, is that violent or is that is that uh, compassionate at that point in time? Right. You know, right. Um, there was a scene where George gets so frustrated that Anne won't intake food or water that um, and then she's almost like fighting him not to do it, that he slaps her. And it's a it's a powerful scene because. I mean, this is not a guy that we ever have had any inkling that he has ever slapped. A woman, his wife before, and he was just so frustrated that he can't save her, and then she won't go along with any of the efforts that might help her, you know. Um, but uh it's like one stubborn head against another. And and again, like who's doing the right thing here?
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what you could call maybe a violent moment. And then that final act, I think, is I mean, it can be violent and compassionate. I mean, it certainly is a is a an act of, I don't know. It, it, there's there's struggle there. But yeah, I think the character certainly sees it as compassionate and it is compassionate toward her and compassionate toward him. That is not that he's not ever thinking of himself in there. And it's not like he should never be able to think of himself. Right. He's a human. Being right.
1: Too. And he has a lot of those conversations uh, with his daughter, uh, played by Isabel Huppert, who we've talked about before on our Heaven's Gate episode. Josh. Oh man, Heaven's Gate keeps coming up this season. I know, it's a, it's a, it's a powerhouse film and one day you'll you'll get around to realizing yeah. that.
0: So finally, Kenneth Turan in the Los Angeles Times said, "Amour is a perfect storm of emotion picture with an icy, immaculate director unexpectedly taking on deeply emotional subject matter. What happens to a lifelong harmonious marriage when the wife suffers a series of debilitating strokes that change the couple's life beyond recognition? The resulting interplay of ruthless restraint and unavoidable passion, plus the film's refusal to shrink from depicting the inevitable horrors of physical deterioration, is devastating. Finally, however, as its title insists, Amour is a moving love story, a privileged glimpse of a relationship between two people who are everything to each other, and a film that enlarges our understanding of a reality we would prefer not to confront.
1: I think that's true, especially here in America, right? We don't do death very well here. Yeah, I mean, this is a country
0: where it never really comes up and, and we get the sense, I think, from where they live that these are
1: fairly financially comfortable people. But, oh, they're definitely yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, I don't mean to interrupt no. you, but that was one of the things I was thinking while watching this. Imagine if they didn't have money that like had the struggles they would have gone through here,
0: right? But what I wonder is that in France, if they didn't have, I mean, they they clearly do have money, but we never really talk about how much of this care is is subsidized. I mean, there is the one scene where Georges pays the nurse that he's fired. And so obviously he has been paying these women or has to pay them, but you know, this is a country with, with nationalized healthcare. And there's never a question of, is this even going to be difficult to afford? Right. Even if they're well off, he never says anything like it's costing a lot of money or asking the daughter about financial support or her offering financial support or anything like that. And she's clearly successful as well. So I think that's a big part of it. That even in the U.S., even if you're financially comfortable, something like this can just be so incredibly expensive that it 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 com- completely decimates all of your finances.
1: Yeah, but who cares, Josh? <laughs> capitalism. Yeah,
0: they have capitalism in cost. France
1: too. They just no, I know, yeah. but I mean, but I'm saying like, but they don't use that as an excuse to be like, no, we shouldn't have universal health care. True.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's 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 no good. So that's that.
1: I'm not an anti-capitalist. Okay, Josh, but I am. Pro universal. I,
0: I agree with you. I agree with you. I uh, you know, am uh horrified to imagine what sort of indignities will be visited upon me in my old age if I can't afford it. Yeah.
1: You've already <laughs> experienced so many in your life. Thank you, Jason. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, so um
0: had you you never watched this one or any Michael Hanukkah films before?
1: No, and you told me about how just brutal it was going to be, but um, it, it's it's a good movie, man. It's a really good movie, and it um, I think it paces. It's got such a good pace to it. Like he does a great job of keeping a pace to this. Thing.
0: Yeah, that was one thing actually that I was a little less enamored of. Is I feel like it does get to a certain point where you're like, okay, now you're just. Being mean to the audience and the characters, and which is his thing generally, but um, I I kind of did feel that way at, at at certain points. But but I I do think it's really good, and I had seen it before, and I looked back at my review of it that I'd written, and I was sort of lukewarm on it at the time. Actually, I think maybe in part because it had just been like this hugely hyped film, and already by the time I got to see it, it had been awarded and gotten so much acclaim that it's you have these high expectations. And at the time I said something sort of similar to what Mandola Dargis says is that it does exhibit some of this sadism that Hanukkah is known for and the coldness or whatever. And I felt less that way this time. So I do think it's really good. And I've seen a few of his other films. And so maybe it's slightly colored by that because like I said, those are, are just incredibly brutal in a, in a way that is less of here's what happens. You can watch this movie and think it's brutal, but it's, it's real right? You know, this is something that really goes on. This is something that many, many, many people are going to have to face one way or another. Um, whereas in his other films, there's a lot more of like, this is a sort of uh, elaborate situation that he's created to put these people and us, the viewer, through horrific torture. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, But I, I liked it a little more this time, I think. Um, Dave, had you ever seen this film? I, this is one of those movies I thought for sure I had,
2: but once I was watching, I was like, yeah, no, I never saw this before. But uh, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, it's just such a good movie. And Funny Games is the only other Hanukkah film I've seen. The see.
0: American one or the original? The American one, not the yeah. original.
1: Although, Josh, I should tell you I was on Facebook earlier and I learned from Sonny Rosen that Dave watched Jim Belushi in K-9 a hundred times as a kid. Well, that's a different kind of torture, I think, right? <laughs> Just wait for that awesome movie. Yeah,
0: I can't wait for I think I'd rather watch this again than Canine, but um, we'll see about that. Uh, anything else on the background of this film you want to mention, Jason?
1: No, I just want to say, because, like, it's, you know, we'll talk about it. It's a good movie. And, you, you know, usually when you see, like, you know, obviously Hanukkah is like a master director, right? And you're like, oh, I should watch more of his stuff. But the way you describe all of it, it's like, I don't want to watch more Yeah, um, I don't so. blame you.
0: It's difficult, and I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll try to watch another film, maybe like The Piano Teacher, which stars Isabelle Huppert, uh, before this episode. And and I I didn't really have the time for it. But even if I had had the time, I think I would have been like, okay, I got to brace myself because I have to watch a more too, and I've already seen it once. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is it is a, a difficult experience to watch any of his films, but I think usually worthwhile. So. We'll get into more of that when we talk about our general thoughts on *Amour*. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2012, we are talking about the can Palme d'Or winner, *Amour* from Michael Hanukkah, and uh, the general unpleasantness but rewarding unpleasantness, I think, usually of of this director's films. And Jason, what was the hardest part of this film for you to watch? Do you think?
1: Oh, let's go yeah. there. Uh, let's see. I mean, the whole the the whole disintegration of uh, Riva's character. Like I said, it reminded me of a combination of both of my grandparents. But I think at the end where he's singing to her and you see her like struggling to get the words out of the song. And it's like this combination of her body has failed her and you don't know how much of her mind has failed her at this point. Like that was a very difficult scene to watch.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, as we've said, Emmanuel Riva's performance in this movie is so impressive. And that's such a, like a physical performance the way that she i mean she's fully physically yeah, how able do you do that? and yeah to to oh. to do that i mean it's just as as much of a physical effort i feel like as someone playing like a demon in a horror movie or something where they have to contort
1: their body in weird ways so it might be harder josh because you really have to just focus on specific elements of your body as opposed to using the whole instrument, right? Right,
0: right. And really seized up there. But yeah, I think for me, one of the most difficult things is that scene that we we mentioned where he's trying to get her to drink water and she's just refusing and refusing. And, you know, you think about why she's doing this seemingly because even though she can't communicate anymore, she's doing this seemingly because she wants to die. And he even says, you know, if you don't drink, you're going to die. And I was thinking about how awful it would be as, as terrible as her situation is at the moment, how much worse it would be to sit there and then like die of dehydration or something that that's what she feels like is a, is a better alternative to what she's dealing with at that moment. So, you know, that was, that was rough.
1: I think at that point, I don't think she, I think it was almost more of a statement of like, let me go. Right. You know, so, and, uh, and we dealt, I dealt with that. I, I know you said you have too, but it's, it's hard. It's so hard. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't, uh, you know, been as close to it, just in re- re- real proximity, maybe. Um, but yeah, well, my grandfather definitely had a, a, a bad decline in the last like year or so of his life, I would say. Um, so thankfully I I didn't have to witness a lot of that directly because I'm sure it was very very difficult but um you know again I think this is a thing we're talking about this and and our experiences whatever they are 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 very very common. This is something that a lot of people go through whether it's eventually with a spouse or it's with a parent or a grandparent or or all of those. It's something that you might end up having to face multiple times
1: in your life. Right. Hey, Josh, let me ask you a few questions about this. Um, So he fires the nurse um, who he said treated her uh, badly. Did I miss something in there? I I didn't really see any instance of the nurse treating uh, Rivas and, and that badly. I mean, the only scene that you see of that
0: is when she's like combing her hair. And she's doing it a bit aggressively. I guess it looks like it's maybe not very pleasant for her. And clearly she doesn't want that to be done to her at that moment. And then the nurse like is trying to show her her reflection in the mirror and she's very upset. And I don't know if that's meant to specifically be the incident that is like the breaking point. But I think the idea there is that she's just maybe insensitive and uh,
1: she's going to just do it her way and not listen. Right. Have the bedside. That's what I saw
2: That's exactly what I saw. It was like, it was just by the books, not taking into account uh, her feelings whatsoever. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. that
0: maybe, not that she's being harmful necessarily, but, but he is unable to see someone treat his wife with that level of sort of indifference where he's been doing everything possible to treat her with the most care, even, you know, to his Mm. own detriment, possibly.
1: Definitely to his own detriment. I mean, dude, how could you? how could you come out of that situation stronger? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's got to just tear you apart physically and mentally and emotionally. And he knows that, you know, what, uh, let's talk about the ending. Okay. With the spoiler, as you've mentioned. So, um, so eventually he does uh, smother her, um, after he tells her a a nice story from his childhood and it's kind of his way of letting her go. And then, We know what's happened is he's put her in this nice dress and he's put flowers all around her. And then he just seals up the room with tape and we see him go into the kitchen and he he has this vision of Anne and she's getting ready to go out and uh, he's going to go out with her. And she says, you know, aren't you going to bring a jacket? And then he grabs a jacket and leaves. And that's the last we ever know of this person. And we know from the beginning That the only reason that they found Anne was because of, you know, people either checked or, you know, or there had been no type of response from anything in the apartment for days.
0: Right. I mean, I got the impression that he is now also dead. And we see that after he seals up the room, that for some undetermined amount of time, he's just been living there. We see that he set up a bed in like the den or office area or something like that. So. He's just been living. And then right before that final scene of him, when he has this this vision of her being perfectly healthy and and getting ready to go out, he kind of wakes up in the bed and he struggles to get up. That
1: was a hard scene to watch.
0: Yeah. And I think what that indicates there is that is a moment where I feel like, you know, he has also died, right? Whether he had a heart attack or a stroke or something. His body has given out and he's dead. And even though we don't see in that opening scene when they break in, we don't see them find his body like we see her body, but we also don't see that room and what's in there. And my guess is, that was my feeling, is that he's now dead. And whether it's the afterlife or just some sort of dying vision that he has, there's a moment for him to feel like they have reunited in, in a sort of happier circumstance. And that's what he's got at the end of his life.
1: Is there anything to this, Josh, Um, you know, throughout the movie, these pigeons keep flying in, in the window. Right. And we see at one point, Anne is on the floor by the window because she was trying to probably jump out of the window. Correct.
0: Oh, I didn't necessarily, maybe I didn't necessarily get that. I thought it was because at that point she's in better shape, I guess, and is, is mentally Competent, And I thought that was a more of an illustration of her stubbornness that she thought she could grab something off the table or whatever without help and has to realize that no, she can't.
1: But you might be right. You might be right. And you might and you might be right. But I kept we kept coming to the window and unwanted, you know, birds coming in and maybe her trying to get out. And I thought, you know, maybe that's what happened. Maybe he just jumped. That's what I thought. Really? Actually.
2: Yeah. I thought that he took all those clues of the birds of her possibly trying to jump. And that's what he did after he finished smothering her.
0: I mean, the only reason or the main reason that I would say that's not the case is that if that had happened, someone would have noticed. And when they break in at the beginning you get the impression that no one has seen either of them for some period of time. That's why they're breaking in. And the neighbor says, oh, I don't know. They had a nurse coming for a while. Like, I don't think that his body is sitting on the ground below the apartment building and no one ever saw that it was there.
1: Yeah, and that goes back to, again, that first scene. Like, what if we had just seen that scene at the end and not at the beginning? But yeah, that's a fair point. Mm -hmm. Also, it could just be that, you know, like... He got to his breaking point mentally, right? And, you know, now he is, you know, having diminished uh, faculties, and maybe he does believe that his wife is saying, "Hey, let's go out." and he's just an old man lost in the city for at that point. In I time. mean, I guess that's true.
0: Theoretically, he could be wandering around somewhere, but they break in. and I mean, I guess he could have wandered out, locked the door, left, and then they break in later. But that's not the impression that I get. i'm i I'm pretty sure. That this is meant to indicate that in one way or another, they are now both They're dead. They're both dead. Yeah.
1: yeah. Gotcha.
0: Cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, that solves <laughs> that <laughs> mystery. Good. This is definitely one of those. It's like a puzzle box movie that you need to solve. It's really more like a JJ Abrams production, I think. What we got going here?
1: Uh, I mean, look, there's uh look. So one thing I read is the script is only like 60 pages, and each shot goes on for about 32 seconds average, right? So is really letting the actors play out in these long takes. And like, you're getting these amazing performances and it never feels like, I mean, it all basically takes place in one location and it never feels like that location's getting stale or old. Like he has a good way of keeping it, you know, moving and showcasing the area and the environment. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good movie. It's a good character study. I think it could be a good play also.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, it does other than we see... Um, at, not at the very, very beginning, because we start with that break-in scene, but when we first see George and Anne, they are out of the house, they're attending this concert with their student, who has now become this renowned pianist, and once they come home from the concert, then we never leave the apartment. And that's, that's sort of this final moment, and I think that's one of the heartbreaking things too, is that you can see that here they are going about their daily lives They're doing all these activities. They're going to this concert and not that it's not an important concert or something that they're really wanting to do, but it's just one more thing that can suddenly then become like the last thing that you do. And after that, everything changes for them. And they do, I mean, they leave the house because we learn that she's hospitalized for a certain amount of time. And and he goes out here and there to, to run errands or whatever. At one point they talk about him going to the funeral of someone who I assume is like one of their friends. But we never see right. any of that anymore. We just see what's going on inside the house.
1: Yeah. It it's very uh all those points like like I said, like they all happen in in my life, like to my grandparents. So it's it's tough. Like, you know, this is 2012. I remember like I told uh my grandparents how much I love Moonrise Kingdom and they were gonna go out and see it. And my grandma fell, and then that was that, like on the way, you know. So it's crazy how quickly things like that can change you know and th- this is such a hard movie we didn't even talk about like one of the most harrowing scenes at the beginning where they're just at the breakfast table having a nice conversation and she suffers a stroke and you're just seeing like her body and her mind just shut off and it's just so off-putting like in a um i mean and off-putting is maybe not the right word but again hard to watch and just like, oh my God, <laughs> tough. Right,
0: yeah, and I think if you know anything about this film, even if you haven't seen it before, you're just sort of waiting for this to start happening. You know, it's almost like a like mm-hmm. a suspense. You know, you watch the early scene, and rather, even, even if you don't know anything about the film, just based on the opening scene, and I think that's one of the things is that Hanukkah wants to set that expectation for you, that like, things aren't gonna go well here, and you're just waiting for how is it gonna start, and then it happens in that moment. So uh, yeah, it's it's rough. And I think going back to what you're saying about you know Hanukkah as a director, and this movie is full of these long takes and c- keeping the camera in place a lot and often showing some of these scenes without as many close-ups. I mean, there's a long scene where Georges talks to their daughter, the Isabelle Huppert character, and Hanukkah shoots most of the scene from behind George's head. So you don't even see his face as he's talking and you see her as she's talking to him. But, you know, there is I think that remove, which is something that he's known for, these films being very aloof, being very clinical and also where you have to really hone in on something in the frame and he's not going to direct you to what it is. I think of also the the scene where we see the audience in the concert at the beginning, and you don't necessarily know who our main characters are yet. And they're just there amongst the audience and you have to kind of pick them out. And, you know, he's known for that, uh, the review that talked about the end of Caché, and um, there's a the, the scene at the end of Caché that people will talk about again and again is something where you have to really like pick out some tiny background thing that's key to the entire plot of the movie that wraps it up at the end, theoretically, that people debate. Um, so I mean there is definitely that remove. And I saw this quote from from Trentignon who said, uh, often directors ask us to show what we feel. And with Hanukkah, no. Above all, you mustn't show what you feel. You just have to feel. And he does the rest.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I know, you know, he said he how much he respected him and, you know, how much he trusted him. So uh, I think we should rate this thing, Josh. Before I want to jump out of a window. Oh man! <laughs>
0: I mean, I guess I just wondered. Like, did you feel at any point that it was sort of too removed, or that it was it was picking at the audience like somebody picking the wings off a fly?
1: It's relentless, but I don't think so. You know, maybe if he had killed that pigeon, if he had just like taken the anger out on the pigeon. but no, I don't think so. I mean, this was about the decline of a person and a uh the health of uh, a couple, right? So I think it was it all went as it could have gone. yeah,
0: I I mean, mm-hmm. I guess I did like I said, in my review that I wrote at the time, I was critical of that and I did feel that a bit here at a certain point. It's like, yes, it is It is depicting all that and it wants to be very clear about every little bit of horribleness that happens. But I did feel like at a certain moment, okay, I've had enough. And not I've had enough like, oh, this is hard to watch because, I mean, it is. But also like you've made your point and now you are just fucking with people.
1: I guess, I mean, the counter to that is that happens, right? Where people do live, lose their capacities, and then they're still alive and then it still keeps going. Right. Right. So right. You know. And it didn't bother me so. as
0: much, but I maybe just knowing what I've known about him and his other films, it, it seemed like he maybe takes a little bit of pleasure in knowing that people are going to be very unhappy while watching
1: this film. So your theory is he created this whole movie about this woman who, who goes from healthy to double stroke victim and loses all of her capacities, and which is influenced by his his aunt situation. He did all of this just to torture an audience. Josh,
0: I mean, not entirely, but in a little bit,
1: yes, because
0: that is his thing, and that's what Mm -hmm. he's done in many many other movies, and that he wants people to feel discomfort. And he wants people to look at themselves. Like that one review mentions, like I think Manola Dargis, she mentions like the critical thinking, the idea of examining, why are you watching a movie? What are you getting out of the experience of watching any movie, of watching characters do what they're doing in this, in these films? So I think there's a level of that less so than in his other films, but I think it's there. So. I feel like your
1: review is exactly what your review is for jackass. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: um i i would honestly rather watch this again than watch a jackass movie add that to canine yeah
1: well let's rate yes, it Josh. Let's. Out of jason's five ready
0: to in, end the pain
1: a five incoming pigeons sure. shall we yeah, or five symphonies whatever you that want that is
0: and, that is those are both nicer things than we could have picked so go for yeah. it
1: yeah so, oh yeah it gets three and a half for me um it's good and the performances are amazing so it's hard to watch but um As we saw when we posted this on social media, a lot of people were, when we said, what movies do you want us to cover? This was one of the movies that kept coming up, and um, yeah, it's a good film. Watch this movie. It is
0: a good film, and I'm going to give it three and a half pigeons as well, which is an upgrade from what I gave it when I first saw it, because I feel like my misgivings are less strong now, but it is a very good movie. It's not something that I'm necessarily pleased that I watched twice, but if you've never seen it once, it's certainly worth checking out so Dave how would you rate this
2: I'm going Going with four pigeons it's it's a great movie and like you guys said it's a difficult watch but it's really really good
0: yeah yeah I mean kind of prepare yourself but but give it a shot because there will be maybe a catharsis too to watching this potentially so Mm -hmm. we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Amor Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2012, we are talking about Cannes Film Festival Palme d'Or winner Amour from Michael Hanukkah. And as we said, this guy, he's a a major international filmmaker. This is certainly his most well-known and I think sort of quote-unquote mainstream film in terms of, like we said, all the Oscar nominations and things like that, where I feel like previously his films were were well-known amongst people who were interested in art house movies and stuff like that, but less so in a, in the wider culture. And this broke out there, but he himself was, uh, was getting on in years there by the time he made this film. And he's only directed one other film since this one, which is called Happy End from 2017, which I haven't seen, but does also feature Jean-Louis Trintignant and Isabelle Huppert. And weirdly, I don't believe it's connected in any other way, and I haven't seen it, so I can't say for sure. But for some reason, Jean-Louis Trintignant, his character in Happy End has the same name, Georges Laurent, as his character in this film. And I'm not sure exactly Mm. why that
1: is. Well, maybe uh, we have to watch that to see if he gets a happy end. <laughs> yeah, maybe a happier end, but I don't <laughs> think so. It's a Hanukkah film. Um, yeah. So yeah. But he hasn't made a movie in five or six years, like you're saying.
0: Right, yeah, 2017. And I don't know that he has anything in the works right now. I mean, he himself is now 80, so he may be getting into retirement. He He has directed some stage work. He directed an opera in 2013, so a little bit of that, but overall seems to have kind of wound down. I, I I would be surprised if he's having difficulty getting a movie made because he is so well-known, especially in Europe. I'm sure he can get something going if he wants, but I'm not really sure what his status is.
1: Yeah. And then Josh, this film was produced by Les Films de, de Los Angeles. How do you like that? Sure. Which was founded by Barbe Schroeder and Eric Romer. So, you know, it would be like if Criterion put out your your film for you or something. Right.
0: And Criterion certainly has put out some Michael Hanukkah films. And right, this is a French film, but Hanukkah himself is Austrian and he's made films in German and in French and in English. So he's uh, quite the international
1: uh, tour there and, and Josh, including funny games, which he made in remade in English from its original, um, uh, language, right. And that that is, made that movie twice. Yes.
0: And that is his only film in English. And I've only seen the English language version, but from all I remember reading about it is that it's not just that he remade it, but it is a shot for shot, word for word remake that he did basically just because he wanted that movie to reach a wider audience. And I remember at the time that that movie came out, the English language version, that that was, some of that was was criticism of it, that it had essentially no difference from the earlier version. I remember uh, Slant Magazine, which is a movie review publication that that I like reading, and they were so adamant, apparently, about this, that their review of the English language version is verbatim their review of the German language version, <laughs> with one phrase added that it's now in English or something like that. Like that's how similar those movies are apparently. Mm,
1: what a shot they've taken.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. So. Obviously that was a, a criticism. Josh
1: uh, trigonet. <laughs> if that is his name. That is not. Oh, Trigon. There you go. You got uh, it. You got he, it. He died last year at age 91. Uh, as you said, just a legend where I said it. Uh, Z, three colors red and God created woman. The man who lies, just a ton of, Classic cinema from uh, the other side of the ocean,
0: right? And and almost all of that before this film, he again had been essentially retired for 14 years and came back, and then he did appear in Happy End. And the last movie he made is a Claude Lelouch film called The Best Years of a Life, and that is the third film in Lelouch's series that began with A Man and a Woman, which is one of his most both. Trintignant and Claude Lelouch's most famous films and a major French New Wave film and was almost like his, uh, you know, before trilogy or something like that, checking back in with these characters over a much longer period of time, obviously. But that was the final film that uh, Jean-Louis Trintignant appeared in and and before his death last year.
1: That's why we pay you the big bucks, Josh.
0: yeah, right. Because I can read Wikipedia.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no one reads Wikipedia like you do. Man, I'm so good at it. Uh, Riva died a few years earlier. She was also in one of uh, Kieslowski's three colors films, uh, which was blue. And um, uh, Josh, how would you describe the three colors for people who don't know it? Uh, Polish filmmaker made this trilogy in the nineties and it's like this kind of landmark series. Would you, would you not say? Yeah.
0: I haven't seen those movies in quite some time. So I don't know that I could describe like the plots of them. But I think they're they're mostly thematically connected. They're not right. narratively connected per se. Um, I think and they're the, red,
1: white, and blue.
0: Yeah, and and representing different emotions or different uh, sort of life experiences. I you know I'm I'm messing it up probably, but um, you're right. Definitely landmark films from Krasnovsky, and each one about a, a main, mainly about a female character. I think Juliette Binoche in one, and is it Julie Delpy? In, uh, in another one and I forget in the third one. So maybe I'm totally wrong. I
1: think it's time for us to revisit it. I haven't seen them since college. Yeah,
0: either. I think one of them might have been an option potentially for one of our seasons and we didn't end up doing it. But certainly those are our major international films. Emmanuel Riva also, she she only had a, a couple, I think one or two more film roles after this, but she did return to performing on stage and that was something she did a lot in her career. Isabel Huppert, like you said, we've talked about her In Heaven's Gate, I mean, such a different (laughs) kind of movie. She's an incredibly prolific actor in multiple languages. Really, like, one of the major international actors of the last, what, 30 years, more. Finally was nominated for an Oscar for Elle, the uh, Paul Verhoeven film. And she worked with Michael Hanukkah. Again, she was also in Happy End, but had previously worked with him in The Piano Teacher. And I believe in The Time of the Wolf also, which I've seen. And I just love this is the range of her career. Her two major roles in 2022 were in EO and Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. I mean, I feel right. like you can't get more diverse That's range. Than that. Yeah.
1: Who did she play in EO? I don't even the remember. The donkey. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't seen it, but I just
0: noticed that it was her credit. So
1: I think it's funny though, Josh, because we we she is one of the most acclaimed and awarded actresses of the last 40 or 50 years, and. This is a smaller supporting performance and Heaven's Gate, we said, was probably the wrong fit for her. So I don't think we've really, you know, gotten to the meat of what she's able to accomplish as an actress on this show.
0: Right. Yeah. I think we have, we've not talked about a movie where she's the lead performer and in this one, it is a smaller role. I would imagine in part because she'd worked with Michael Hanukkah before and was happy to do whatever he asked of her. But I mean, I think she's good. You know, you have to convey, we didn't really talk about that character, but you have to convey there the mix of caring and also she's a bit self-involved. You know, there's that scene where she's just talking meaninglessly about her investments or whatever to to Anne as Anne is lying there in bed, unable to speak. And it's like, on the one hand, that seems very self-involved. But on the other hand, you can imagine that If you're in that situation and you're just at such a loss for like, what do I even do here? You just start babbling about whatever comes to mind.
1: Yeah. I think that's what it is, is like, she's just like, well, what would I normally talk to you about? That type of thing. Right.
0: Right. So, um, But I do think that's a good uh, performance from her that's just overshadowed because the others are such major
1: uh, pieces of work. You're a major piece of work.
0: (laughs) The other person I wanted to mention briefly, Alexandra Thoreau. Who is the pianist who they uh see perform at the beginning of the film and then comes to visit them later on. And he's an actual French concert pianist playing himself. This is the only movie he ever acted in and is became he went on to record many, many albums as an incredibly successful classical musician in France. I thought that was kind of interesting and and random. Yeah,
1: I, I noticed the same thing.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I'm not sure how that came about and why he ended up being in the film that way, but uh what a film if you're gonna be in one movie in your entire career. Which one what a film to pick? <laughs> there
1: you go. This is the one. So.
0: Yeah. So, um, Jason, what is your favorite movie about the decline of old age?
1: <laughs> Do you have one beyond huh. this one? I have to think about that. That's a good question. So uh let's see. You know, we were uh my old writing partner and I were gonna write one about a about a like a grandfather and a grandson who the grandfather knows he's going to die and he says, like, I want to go, you know, have one more week in Vegas and party it up with you and then um, and then I'm going to kill myself. So um, a decline in old age. That's, uh, do you have one, Josh? I'll have to think about. Yeah, that. well, because so. I came up with this, so I
0: thought of it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I was thinking of The Father. I mean, especially in terms of like, if we talk about legacy of this film, things that have come later, um, that movie, which was just from a year or two ago. And is also incredibly hard to watch with an amazing performance from Anthony Hopkins as a man who's dealing with dementia and Mm -hmm. a movie that really puts you in the perspective of the person who's dealing with this. You know, if we want to say Hanukkah has a certain level of remove, perhaps here, the father is the opposite of that. And it really puts you right alongside what would it be like to experience this? So I don't know if, if you've seen that, Jason, but it's I mean, it's a tough watch, but
1: also a really good film. Cool. That'll be a great double feature for Valentine's
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. If you've not seen these I've got one to throw in. Yeah, I know. Dave, I have a feeling Dave was going to mention. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. Gasper Noe's Vortex, which, by the way, when we covered that on a trailer episode, Jason, I was so sure I'd seen him more. I used it as a puzzle piece for it, Um, but then I found out, oh, I never actually saw that movie, but I... yeah, I mean, just as brutal, and uh, it, it's about a, an old couple uh, dealing with dementia, and of course it being Gaspar Noe, you know, first of all, just as brutal as can be, but then it, it kind of has, I, I don't want to use the word gimmick, but I mean, I guess that's what you would call it, of it being split screen to kind of keep their experiences separate because they can't really understand each other anymore at that point. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's another very difficult watch, but really great.
0: Yeah, and, and no way like Hanukkah, I feel like as a director who's known for that kind of brutalizing of the audience and and the characters. And I feel like a lot of the the discussion around that film was similar to this one, where here he's now making a movie that's more sensitive, that's more caring, mm-hmm. and in contrast to his previous films, yet with the same kind of technical prowess that he brought to those other films. So yeah, um
2: absolutely. I haven't
0: I haven't seen that, but you know, I won't. it's a tough hang
1: (laughs) there you go yeah
0: so So, uh anything else on the legacy of this film jason you want to talk about uh i need a hug yeah i'm going to give you a virtual (laughs) hug and this was a rough one but we made it through that is a more that is this episode of awesome movie year give us a hug online and on social media hey josh how about up for that answer Oh, that's a good one yeah that is no. a good one that is devastating in like 10 minutes does a lot of yeah the first the does. perfect
1: 10 minutes yeah, right yeah. yeah uh we are on social media perfect time to plug it after we've just talked about um a group of people who are up there in age who probably don't know how to use social media or wouldn't use social media we're at uh, awesometinmovieier.com awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram awesome movie pod on Twitter I'm Jason Harris comedy or Jay Harris comedy on all the socials I have a website, Eat This Comedy. I'm also Eat This Comedy and the Trivia Party on Instagram.
0: Some not much at joshbellhateseverything.com. Maybe something about some Michael Hanukkah movies from back in the day. I don't remember. But uh, more stuff, you can check out Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together.
2: Check out Piecing It Together, wherever you listen to
0: podcasts, and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And Jason, what uplifting film are we talking about in our next episode?
1: I'm not going to say it's uplifting, but it's not. Uh, uh, it's not harrowing like this one, and it's a really good documentary by Sarah Polly, who's nominated for Best Picture and uh, Best Screenplay right now, I think, at the time of recording from this year's Oscars. We're not covering that movie, which is called Women Talking. We're covering an amazing documentary she made called Stories We Tell. So tune in next time for Stories We Tell. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year.
0: Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie
2: Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
0: An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.